Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. The gospel reading tonight is from Luke chapter 20. We are continuing in our short little worship series called Four Questions and a Funeral. We're on question two tonight. As the liturgical year is winding down, as it draws to a close, we find Jesus in Jerusalem. He is being challenged by religious leaders, the VRPs, the very religious persons, asking provocative questions that they intend to trick him and get him in trouble. And we are exploring those questions they ask as windows into our own actual questions about faith. Tonight, the question, what happens after we die? Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless. Then the second and the third married her, and so, in the same way, all seven brothers died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, God is God not of the dead, but of the living. For to God, all of them are alive. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him another question. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. With recognition of and apology for the heteronormative nature of the discussion that follows, bear with me and the Sadducees, if you will. It was an altogether utilitarian piece of legal code, the one about a man marrying his brother's widow. Empty of romance, ignorant of the heart's desires, dismissive of love. 
Unless you mean the kind of love that is decisional, the kind of courageous and selfless love that offers up its own happiness to ensure the well-being of another. I know it's not kosher to name self-sacrifice as a gift of love these days, but the religious law Jesus honored definitely asserted that one's own happiness is far from the highest good, that God's own way of being suggests a calculus that counts the best interest of the other as the weightiest factor in ethical decision-making. That's the kind of love, decisional, useful, selfless, that would send a man to the marriage altar with his brother's widow. Because if she didn't have children with her first husband, you see, she was SOL when it came to, oh, you know, having a roof to sleep under. She didn't own property. She didn't have a job. She was dependent in that economy on a father, a husband, or a son to keep her life. Think of the story of Ruth and Naomi, for example. A daughter-in-law, her mother-in-law, both of them widowed, neither of them with any financial means or stability. Provisions in the Torah ensured their sustenance. Laws against harvesting to the very edges of your field, for example, made it possible for Ruth to glean the extra wheat from Boaz's farm. And Naomi, upon realizing that Boaz was a cousin of hers and single, sent Ruth to stake her religious legal claim as his relative's childless widow, one whom he should marry, one whose tab he should pick up till death did them part. So the Sadducees' challenge to Jesus was based on this provision in the religious law, stretched out to absurdity in their hypothetical, wherein a woman runs through seven marriage-eligible brothers without producing a child with any of them. Let us pause for a moment to acknowledge that the woman in this story problem is likely not a happy camper. Her highest value in this scenario is as a breeder, an incubator, a baby maker, and Lord knows she's tried, but it's just not happening. Being with one brother after another, each of whom is only with her out of obligation, is not bringing her sexy back. And all I can think is that the sister must be tired. But I digress. Or do I? Perhaps the Sadducees are onto something we all know on some level to be true, but don't usually admit out loud. The thing is, there is something basically utilitarian about all marriages, even in a culture like ours where romance has supposedly won the day. You know, of course, that for a long time, and in many cultures still, marriages are arranged by families of origin, strictly regulated by factors like class or caste, ethnicity or religion, the exchange or stability of literal property rights, 
Marrying for love has not always been and still is not everywhere the norm, which I think is one factor in some cultures' suspicions about gay and lesbian identity. What do you mean you can't help who you love? People have been helping it for centuries, loving, or at least marrying, whoever their families and societies said they can marry for as long as people have gotten married. That is not me making that argument. I'm just adding another puzzle piece to my understanding of some people's homophobia insofar as it helps us to understand it. The point being, every marriage, even one that begins with romance, is at least potentially useful. It starts when the IRS gives you a tax break, just for saying I do. And when you realize how much more economical it is to combine your household expenses, it continues as you divide and conquer responsibilities that could overwhelm a person trying to go it alone, housekeeping, child rearing, vocational advancement. So recently, I have been recruited for some stints as a puppy sitter for my spouse's newest obsession. And he made the run to Home Depot yesterday when I belatedly realized that I'd forgotten to get the sand we needed for tonight's reflection station. Of course, it's much more than just trading favors. Over our three plus decades of relationship, we have helped each other get a PhD and get tenure and start a church and write books about it and find our way through a pandemic and raise our amazing kids and more and more lately, take care of our parents. We have helped each other become who we are each meant to be. More and more Katie, more and more Lance, the more time we have together. You know, there is even a Christian imagining of marriage that says our fidelity to one spouse teaches us fidelity to the one God. The commitment to love just one through thick and thin, both when it makes you happy and when it doesn't, is like remaining committed to God, both when it's working for you and when it's not. Monogamy in marriage, in this imagining, is like monotheism. It's the preemptive shutting of all other doors to all other potential relationships, all other potential gods deciding once and for all to remain in the room, dancing with the one what brung you. Let me pause here to say what must be said each time we talk about this, because of all the times it's been wrongly said, dangerously said. There is no Christian argument for staying in an abusive marriage. And there is no Christian obligation to stay in a marriage that diminishes one's identity as a full, flourishing human being. If you need help to get out of any relationship where another person is hurting you, please talk to someone, including me, tonight about that. We can help you. What I'm saying is not that. I'm saying instead that the best marriages the best marriage is one in which each partner helps the other become all of who God means for them to be, contributing consciously to the fullness and flourishing of each other. 
which getting back to those Sadducees riddle, is what the religious law intended to do within the drastic constraints of ancient patriarchy. It compelled a man's brothers, each in their turn, to care for his widow the best way they knew how. Is it utilitarian? Yes. But is it so different from our own useful, decisional, both selfless and self-interested partnerships and marriages? Maybe not. We should remember, though, that the Sadducees' question to Jesus was not intended to point out any awkwardness about the religious laws around marriage. That's our anachronistic take. The fly in their ointment had to do with the resurrection of the dead. Jesus' religious kin were divided then and are still divided now on the question of what happens after we die, whether there's an afterlife, and whether it bears any resemblance to our current life. For some Jews, then and now, as for many contemporary non-religious ethicists and philosophers, it's really gross to think about one's commitment to God in this life, yielding the reward of life forever in something called heaven. In this argument, the dangling incentive of paradise for those who get it right or even for those who simply surrender to God's gift of grace, desiccates religious devotion, making our love of God a very utilitarian proposition. If you worship and obey God out of hope of heaven or fear of hell, the Sadducees had been asking their religious kin for a good while, how is that love at all? Or isn't it more of a transaction that turns all your ethics, all your goodness, all your justice and mercy and generosity into empty gestures of self-preservation. Ew. And so their critique of religion that yields reward was much like our critique of marriages meant only to produce caregiving sons. And they brought this critique to Jesus in the form of a strategium to catch him up to call him to account for his pie-in-the-sky promises of a resurrection, of God's intended care for the lives of God's people after they die. Now, I've spent a lot of time already talking about the Sadducees' question, leaving only a little now for my thoughts about Jesus' answer, because to be honest, I mostly don't like it. He says that in the next stage, in the resurrected life, we are not married, we do not marry, that something about that life is so qualitatively different from this one that this concern about relationships is no longer operative. It's important to notice that when Jesus talks about what happens after we die, he does not talk about it like a very, 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 very long extension of the best parts of our life now. Life in the heart of God is not about more of the good stuff we already know about. More cheeseburgers, more free time, more rainbows, more wealth, more beautiful weather, more good sex, or whatever we imagine would make us happy forever in these bodies, in this life. Not even about more time with your partner. Not even if your partner is a good one. Heaven is not about us getting what we want. 
It is about God getting what God wants and about our trusting that what God wants is good for us and thus wanting that too. But when Jesus says that Lance and I won't be married when God gets everything God wants, well, that sucks because I really like Lance and I love him. And I believe that loving him and being loved by him has been essential for my becoming more and more the Katie that God wants me to be. And by extension, might Jesus also be saying that my grandmother might not be my grandmother in the hereafter? Or that all of us will not be a church in God's good future? That all the human relationships that have meant so much in this life have meant everything in this life, really. Might not mean anything in the life to come. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. Have you ever experienced one of those moments in your relationship with another person hopefully with your partner or your spouse, if you've got one, when all the utilitarian realities of that relationship fall away, and there is, for one shining instant, the pure brightness of love alone, where neither of you needs anything from the other, where your joy in being present with them is perfectly complete, one of those moments where there is no dishwasher to unload, no kid calling for help, no entanglement of mortgage and mood and meaning, no hunger for sex or support or salvation. One of those brief moments where you think that if you died in this instant, you would have experienced perfect love with no regret, no need, no lack, nothing left to wish for. Ever had that? Those moments are rare and so precious. What if Jesus is saying something like, when we reach the heart of God, when we at last experience heaven, God getting everything God wants, and there is nothing left to want, nothing left to pray for or long for, no more justice to hunger and thirst for, no more confusion to worry over, no question left unanswered, no need left unfulfilled, every shred of our personhood honored and honorable, each of us bright shining as the sun, fully ourselves. What if Jesus is saying, when God gets everything God wants, when God gets you fully alive, never again to die, no more sadness or fear of sadness, your table spread, your cup overflowing, your head anointed, yourself no longer a stranger or a guest, but fully at home, the home your heart has ached for, but for which it aches no more. When this happens for you, only then, only then are you finally fully able to love without need. Only then does the Sadducee's hypothetical woman not need a husband or a father or a son to pay her rent. 
Only then do I not need my grandmother to tell me I'm her smart girl or make me scrambled eggs. Only then are any of us set free from the insecurities and imperfections that our lovers treat with tender care for our sakes. Only then can all our relationships be released from the burden of what we each need from each other because there is no need in the heart of God forever. That's what it means to be in the heart of God forever. And only then can all our work be praise. And only then can our restless spirits find settled rest. And only then can I love my beloved without expectation. Only then can my love of God be set free from my hope of heaven. Because only then is my fear of death and what comes after erased. What happens to us after we die? I don't know. But I think it might be amazing. Jesus said so. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.